and trust that this morning, once again, as always, He alone will speak to our hearts and minds. And uh, this morning, we're going to be opening to John chapter 3 and verse 22 and following. And uh, we're going to be reading through to the end of that chapter. And in doing so, uh, confronted with a few things, as I had the privilege of being with you last, I remember we spent a little bit of time at a time when uh, John proudly proclaimed, I am not the Christ. We spent time looking at the fact that often uh, you need to know who you are not before you can uh, become who you are meant to be. And as we looked at that, the reality that often we have to uh, know that we're weak in order to accept Christ's strength, know our own foolishness to accept His wisdom, know our own lostness to accept His direction. That there is a point in place where we have to know what we're not to become who we are meant to be. The reality is the Christian life has never been, nor will it be, a one-moment decision. Uh, a one-time event, but the reality is it's a process. And as God re- reminds us through Paul in Romans 8, he says all things work together uh, for good. And, and, and all things are working for our good. Here's the good. Not that the things in themselves are good, but the following verse says this, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's our good. And when we embrace and welcome the Lord Jesus into our hearts and lives, we set our course on a journey with Him to be made into His likeness. And this morning as we pick up in John's testimony of who Jesus was, we're going to be confronted with this, that again, there is a process that as we identify who Jesus is, in the transformation and change of who we are and how we view the circumstances around us. Let's read our passage together. I'm going to be reading in in the uh, New International Version, John chapter 3, verse 22. It says this, After this, Jesus and His disciples went out into the Judean countryside where He spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who stands, uh, who attends rather, the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven 
is above all. I'm going to stop there and we'll read the conclusion in a moment. But I want to note this morning as we read these verses, they start with an argument. And I believe to understand the passage this morning, as God has been showing and shining a few things in my heart this week, we have to understand the question that was at the center of the concern and the conflict here. And the conflict, the argument developed over a certain Jew, it says, over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, what's important here is this, that... that the Jews at the time, and perhaps in Orthodox Judaism still now, ceremonial washings were of the utmost importance. They were important and everything surrounded in their walk before God was the, the passionate pursuit of cleanliness. From darkness to light, from, uh, from the filth of sin uh, to the cleanliness of godly holiness. And if you go back in the scriptures and read, there were many laws that had to do with cleanliness. And it was so important, just for an example, and there won't be time for all you to turn, but in Leviticus 15 verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any man has a bodily discharge, the discharge is unclean. Not the nicest thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, but here we are, right? Listen to this. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it will make him unclean. This is how his discharge will bring about uncleanliness. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean. Anything he sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and he will be unclean until evening. Whoever sits on anything that man with a discharge sat on must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. And note this, that uncleanliness meant a separation between you and God. Meaning, you can't go to God at that moment. There is a divide, a division. And that ceremonial bathing... And, and as it went, note, yes, you were to bathe yourself, but there were other times, if you keep reading Leviticus 15 and verse 11, any, anyone, the man with the discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water, then must go on and, and bathe his clothes and himself fully with water. You see, there was a whole line and level of ceremonial cleansing. And in some, you were to cleanse your hands and your arms. And there were others in which you were to bathe yourself completely. And if you hadn't done one, then you surely had to do the other. In fact, in our study in John, if you looked and remember in John chapter 2 about the, the, the woman, uh, not the woman rather, but the miracle at Cana and the wedding. It was there when, they, when Jesus himself was asked to turn the, uh, the, and make the wine, he, he went to the, 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 the master of the, the feast and said, what are those over there? Bring me those pots. What were they? Ceremonial washing pots. Pots that sat at the doorway of the home and after having rubbed elbows with Gentiles and the unclean like you and I, they would come in and in order to be 
cleansed from the filth that they had been mingling with, they would wash up to their elbows and once again be ceremonially clean. Now, interestingly enough, that as you may well have looked at, that was a whole nother picture in itself because as the Jews often did, they would take the laws of God and create their own laws all around them. In fact, if you look back at many of the Jewish writings, they'll tell you that that, that situation was prompted and the concern over the wine was in some places where rabbis wrote, no wine at the wedding, no blessing at the marriage. Wine was considered a, a picture of fruit and fruitfulness. And if there was no wine at the wedding, there would be no blessing on the marriage. And here, as they were looking and longing for blessing, and, and much of their ritual and routine was ceremonial blessing, Jesus was more interested in the substance of that blessing. The source. And that was Himself. But listen, no doubt, these Jews were concerned about cleanliness, about washing. And you can imagine, as many were coming to John in a baptism of a washing away from the deadness of works and faith in God to be alive, and up springs Jesus. You'd have to imagine, here's the question. I know I need to bathe. I know I need to be cleansed. Here's the question. Which one? John's or Jesus? Here leads us to the second thing we need to understand to understand the conflict. Because it was this conflict, which baptism is better? If I want to be cleansed, if I want to repent... Whom do I go? That question raised another conflict that was going on that perhaps was simmering under the surface. And isn't it great how God often brings things, these underlying currents to, to the top that need to be dealt with. Because that conflict, that question brought out these statements from John's own disciples. Rabbi, having perhaps not had an answer to those asking, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. What does that tell you? Well, to understand their dilemma, not just which baptism to the Jews seeking cleanliness, but now to the disciples following John, listen, when you look at discipleship, it was far more than a student, teacher, or tutor relationship. If you look back at the history of that relationship, it wasn't a class you took. It was a full-time endeavor. The reality is, it wasn't a curriculum, but a full-time commitment. And one often lived with the teacher and listened to their teachings day in and day out. They fully submitted and surrendered to their authority. They would spend much time with the master, so much time often, that students would not just pick up the words that they spoke, but they would pick up their intonation, their mannerisms, their tones. In fact, after you had spent much time with the master, they would often say, when you hear the student, you've heard the master. 
respect was so well given, a master was never to be overshadowed. But listen, here's the problem. John Gill cites a few places in which Jewish, Jewish law or custom stated this. Listen to this. It is not lawful for a disciple to teach the constitutions or sentences of the law before his master, but must be 12 miles distant from him as the camp of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Not only could you not teach in front of the master, because that would be considered second rate when the source is sitting right there. Secondly, you couldn't even teach if the master was 12 miles away. (laughs) Because listen, if you're going to hear something, that's close enough to walk and get it from the source. (laughs) Why go to anything second best? It was also said this, listen, a disciple that teaches before or in the presence of his master is guilty of death. Not only were they concerned about the right source of cleanliness, they were concerned about the right man to follow, the right master, the right rabbi to learn with. And you imagine these people have given it all They're following, they're listening, they're learning. And now, and look at their perspective. Here comes a man named Jesus after John. John is the one who testifies about him. John is the one who baptizes him. And now he goes, and as we know by the passage, just a short distance away and is baptizing also. That's not right. In every way, Jesus seems to what? Be usurping the authority of the first rabbi, who? John, who they were following. And as their mind wraps around it, as questions start to come, they say, Rabbi, the man who is with you, the one you testified, well, listen, he's baptizing, and now everyone's going to him. (laughs) And everything we spent our lives on is what? Fleeting away. What do you say to that? And this morning, if there's anything God has been confronting me with this week, I love John's response. He says, listen, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. And you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. You see, in all, a great example he gives it is if, and, and I only laugh because I have a friend this happened to, in our time in Quebec, we had a friend who was both funny, talented, musical, and he became the perennial best man at every wedding <laughs> because he was, hands down, and I think I say was because he's probably retired now, he was, and I'll tell you why in a second, he was the best wedding MC. <laughs> He was, no debate. He was musical. He would write 
songs about the couple for, for each wedding and sing them at the celebration. And they would be funny and entertaining. He would have jokes. And at one point, he went to a wedding of a close friend. And if you knew his kind of satirical, dry sense of humor, you'd always laugh. Until the wedding he went where he knew the groom but knew not any of the family. And at this point, he thought it would be funny to stand up and let the people know who the real deal was at that wedding. And he started the after-wedding celebration by saying to the couple, Hey, sit down. This is why the people have come today. And I'm going to show you what this celebration is about. And... To those who knew him, laughed because it was funny. But those who didn't, including the groom's and bride's parents, were utterly distraught. (laughs) Who is this arrogant jerk, right? Listen, guys, you've all come to hear me, and now I'm going to speak. It didn't go much better when his opening joke was, marriage is like flies on a screen door. All the ones on the outside are trying to get in and all the ones on the inside are trying to get out. (laughs) And he knew then, when there was silence, (laughs) that it was going to be a rough evening. (laughs) Hence, I think the retirement soon (laughs) followed. But listen, that's the truth of it all. And he equates the wedding... That John is like the best man. He's not there what? To take all the attention. But to promote and prompt the focus of all on him, the bridegroom. My joy is full when I hear the bridegroom's voice. He knew his place. He knew his role. And yet, as those around him looked on, it created a moment of crisis, a moment of controversy, because here and now, here's John, I must, what? Become less that he might become greater. Everything they had built their lives on, the very teacher they had spent it all to follow, was now saying what? Maybe you should try following Him. Everything that they were thinking they were learning, He was now saying, it's nothing compared to what you can learn from Him. See, you know, no one knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Because on his journey, fascinating to see when you go all the way back in Acts chapter 9 and we're reminded of the fact that Paul, Paul was a persecutor of the church. A hater of the brethren. It reminds us as he held the coats of those killing Stephen that he was in hearty agreement. Still breathing threats as he went on from that point and place. You see, Paul was so passionate about cleanliness, so passionate about righteousness, so passionate about the right way that he was missing the one standing right in front of him the whole time, Jesus. 
In fact, it's Paul's words in Philippians 3 that say this, and it will be familiar to us all. Listen, Philippians 3, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But listen to this. Philippians 3 verse 7. But what it was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, the great confrontation is this. That those followers of John were beginning to see that Christ had eclipsed all that they knew. In fact, the very thing, good as it was, that was there to point them to Christ. And now was a moment where they could either let go or cling even more. And I wonder, and as always, as I come before you, not as someone who has it all together, not as someone who, uh, who has everything figured out, but reminded of this. Each Sunday, we cannot leave without saying this. What does this say or change in the way I live as I walk out these doors? They were confronted with a question. And, and, and here's the, the question for us today. Has there been a place in my spiritual walk where I have been so committed to a way that it's kept me from seeing the one? Is there a place in my spiritual walk where my passion has distracted me from the actual person of Christ? Is there a place in my life where my pursuit of righteousness actually stood in the way of his righteousness? Think of Paul so passionately seeking righteousness in himself and in others that what? Blinded to the way of righteousness that he was actually persecuting. Have I allowed my belief about God to stand in the way of the truth of God. Think of Jonah. Go to the Ninevites. Here's Jonah. No, God, you can't save them. It's not that God couldn't save them. What did Jonah want? <laughs> he didn't want them to be saved. No, God, you can't. I'm not going. His own idea ideology of 
who could or couldn't or should or shouldn't be saved, what? Actually stood in the way of his obedience to seeing the will of God played out in his life. His own prejudice and judgment of the Ninevites standing in the way of him promoting the King of Peace and his presence to them also. And I wonder how many times do I have things in my life where often the very things that are there to point me to Christ obtain my full focus, my passion and my presence, and can stunt my growth where I should be going to the source that is God. I remember a... a, a friend who, who is a, a great preacher and teacher. And I knew him, I say friend, but uh, from a distance. And he went on to have great ministry and TV evangelist in many ways. And I say that not as uh, what we might think of a TV evangelist, but a great teacher with great ministry who became greatly well-known. And he'd have people come to them and say to him and say, Pastor, can you pray for me? Pray for me. You pray for me. <laughs> and his response, I love it, was, why don't you pray? <laughs> no, no, if you prayed for me, then something would happen. And, and I learned the same lessons in my own life. He, he, he often had to stand back and say, hey, listen, your thought, your presumption that my prayers are better than yours are what? actually standing in your way for, from you, what? Praying to the very source that is there to help you. I'm going to step aside now and let you pray. Isn't that great? Didn't want to get in the way of what he knew God could do. Didn't want to take more credit than where credit was due because the credit was all Christ. And today... I wonder where there's these things lying within where I feel the need to be recognized, where I feel the need to be right, where I feel my commitment, my dedication, my devotion define my relationship, my righteousness before God. And this morning we're reminded of this. He must increase. I must decrease. It's none of those. It's the work of our loving Father. And today, whatever is eclipsing the work of Christ must find its rightful place in the shadows where it belongs. Allow those things prominent to be outshined by the preeminent work of Christ. John was willing. John was right and righteously doing so. His followers were having a harder time. Today, what has eclipsed the work of Christ in our hearts and lives? 
what has become more prominent than what is supposed to be preeminent? What am I clinging to that is there to point me to Christ when I need to turn to Christ Himself? Today, that's the prayer. And I love John's response. And we're going to close by reading the remaining verses of our section. Because he said this in John 3.31, the one who comes from heaven is above all. And listen to this. He goes on and shows that there is an irreplaceable position of Christ if we look from that right perspective as he was proclaiming. He says this, John 3.32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Listen to this, 3 verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Did you see it? Four things he notes. The one whom God has sent speaks the Word of God. Are you searching for the Word of God today? You're not going to find it in a denomination from a certain speaker, from a certain pastor or place. You're going to find it where? The one who God has sent in the person of Christ. Irreplaceable position of Jesus. In a time when it's so hard to figure out what's true and not true, keep taking it back to the person of Jesus. For God gives the Spirit without limit. Searching for the Spirit? The Spirit without limit. Where? The person of Christ. That's where. Not found in a certain pond. Not found in a certain baptism. And this was the Corinthians problem. Who were you baptized? Was it Cephas or by Paul? Here's Paul. I'm glad I baptized none of you. Because <laughs> I'm just a farmer <laughs> who's watering God's plants. Right? None of you. Though I may have done one or two, none the rest, <laughs> he says. Listen, you want the Spirit? God gives without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Are you looking for cleanliness? Are you looking for righteous, righteousness? Are you looking for wholeness? Are you looking for strength? Are you looking for wisdom? Are you looking for unity? Are you looking for harmony? Here it is. God's placed everything where? In His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Are you looking for life today? It's found in one place and one alone. The Son. The irreplaceable position of Christ. John knew it. <laughs> Seemingly harder to usher others to know it too. <laughs> It's easy to look around the room and at others and at family and friends and say, ha, huh, you're clinging to something. You've missed it. Harder to look within and say, God, today, where have I missed it? What am I clinging to? 
things about you, but I'm missing you in the process. Things that were there to pave the way for you, but I've allowed them to take your preeminent position all about you. Have I come to that point ready to embrace the irreplaceable position of Christ? But more often than not, it creates the crisis that Paul once needed when he wrote to the Philippians that we need to count all things loss. My commitment, my dedication, my education, my history, my family, the amount I put in the offering, anything that I think has made me more. Nothing in the light of Jesus. And only when I come to that place where I can count it all as loss, the very things I think I know, to know I'm blind, then I come to the Son who gives life. Life abundant and far more than we can ever ask or imagine. Let's pray.